800 years after it was first granted beneath the trees of Runnymede by the fertile green banks of the River Thames, the Magna Carta is more famous than ever. This is strange. In its surviving forms, there are four known original charters dating from June 1215. The Magna Carta is something of a muddle, a collection of promises extracted in bad faith from a reluctant king, most of which concern matters of arcane 13th century legal principle. A few of these promises concern themselves with high ideals, but they are few and far between, vague and idealistic statements slipped between longer and more perplexing sentences, describing the customary fee that a baron ought to pay a king on the occasion of coming into an inheritance, or the protocols for dealing with debt to the crown, or the regulation of fish traps along the river's Thames and Medway. For the most part, the Magna Carta is dry, technical, difficult to decipher, and constitutionally obsolete. Those parts that are still frequently quoted, clauses about the right to justice before one's peers, the freedom from being unlawfully imprisoned, and the freedom of the church, did not mean in 1215 what we often wish they would mean today. They are part of a document drawn up not to defend in perpetuity the interests of national citizens, but rather to pin down a king who had been greatly vexing a small number of his wealthy and violent subjects. The Magna Carta ought to be dead, defunct, and of interest only to serious scholars of the 13th century. Yet it is very much alive. One of the most hallowed documents in the world, revered from the Arctic Circle to the Antipodes, written into the constitutions of numerous countries, and admired as a foundation stone in the Western traditions of liberty, democracy, and the rule of law. How did that happen? The Magna Carta was a peace treaty, born of a serious collapse in relations between King John and his barons. The reasons for that collapse will be discussed in this book, but the basic thrust of events was simple. A large party of John's barons, with the assistance of churchmen, guided by the impressive Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton, demanded that the king confirm in writing and certify with his great seal a long list of rights and royal obligations that they felt he and his predecessors had neglected, ignored and abused for too long. These rights and obligations were conceived in part as a return to some semi-imaginary ancient law code that had governed a better, older England, which lay in the historical memory somewhere between the days of the last Saxon king, Edward the Confessor, and the more recent times of John's great-grandfather, Henry I. The Magna Carta touched on matters of religion, tax, justice, military service, feudal payments, weights and measures, trading privileges, and urban government. Occasionally, it reached for grand principle. Famously, John was forced to promise that no free man is to be arrested, or imprisoned, or deceased, or outlawed, 
or exiled, or in any other way ruined, nor will we go or send against him, except by the legal judgment of his peers, or by the law of the land. And that, to no one will we sell, to no one will we deny or delay, right or justice. But for the most part, what was at issue in 1215 was a tight-knit, technical, and often quite dull shopping list of feudal demands that was mainly of interest to, and in the interests of, a tiny handful of England's richest and most powerful men. The Magna Carta's terms applied only to free men, who were then at best 20% of England's adult population. <laughs> 